You know that we've been going through the book of Romans this summer. If you get the newsletter, we've been trying to be pretty consistent with letting everyone know. And for the next five weeks, we'll be very specifically in Romans chapter 8. Romans itself is essentially the defining book of what it means to be part of the Protestant Reformational movement. It is the book that Luther looked at and was convicted by that showed that faith was through Christ alone and through faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ. And if you look at theologians that have come after him and even some that before him like St. Augustine, you see how prominently Romans figures into their thinking and to our understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for, for us. And now we come to Romans 8, which would be somewhat of a, like a cornerstone chapter within the entire book. Why is that? Because Romans 8 tells us as a church, what is ahead? What is our calling? When we were together, uh, just getting started as Holy Trinity, we looked a lot at Acts 2, 42 to 47 talking about, you know, they, they met in houses and in temple courts. They broke bread together. They ha- held everything in common. They devoted themselves to prayer and to the disciples' teaching. This was essentially the charter for who God was creating the church to be. And now we come to Romans 8, and this is essentially somewhat of a charter about what the church is called to do and how it's called to go forward. And so today, today we start our journey actually in Romans 7, but we get to Romans because it starts with the salvation that Jesus brings. But that is just the beginning. It's the beginning of a new life in Christ. So next week we'll look at what that life in Christ looks like and how much the Spirit is involved in that. Because God doesn't save us just to leave us alone. He doesn't sort of wind us up, spiritually speaking, and let us just keep going until we run out of gas. But He is leading, He is exhorting, He is moving through us, in us, that His will would be done. And along the way, we will see not only his spirit in us, but we'll see the implications of this. Later on, we see that the gospel is more about our, more than just our own personal connection with Christ. It actually is transforming the entire world and cosmos. There's a new creation. All creation is groaning, Acts will tell us later. And, excuse me. All creation is groaning, Romans 8 tells us later. But what does that mean? I, I was sort of raised in this t- tradition not knowing and not really particularly caring. But I think that if we get in touch with what Romans 8 is trying to tell us, we'll understand more about how robust that calling is that Christ has on our life, individually and as a church. But we know that if we live for Christ, this is not something that's easy. We know that it's met by consistent opposition and headwinds, if you will, from any number of places. And so Romans 8 also speaks to the security that we have in Christ. That no matter what we experience, what we go through, nothing can separate us from his love. So Romans 8 is pretty cool, pretty hearty, pretty essential. And uh, we're not spending five weeks in it just because I want to do it. I do want to do it. We're spending five weeks because this is in the readings, the lectionary readings. So in our newsletter, you have those lectionary readings. Um, It's also in the BCP if you don't have a copy of that. But follow along, read ahead, think and ask pray what God is doing. So I'm excited about what he intends to do. I don't want to forecast that because I really don't know all that he wants to do. But let's go ahead and start. Jared read Romans 7. And Romans 7 verse 21 starts this way. I find this law at work. This is writing. Some people wonder if it's autobiographical. Some think he's not, but 
I think that's a good place to start. He's writing, he said, I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law working in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Have you ever walked into a room just thinking it was empty and, and you find a couple people in intense conversation? And you're like, ooh, this is a little awkward. I don't think I belong here right now. <laughs> or maybe you get a seat at a restaurant and then there you're seated next to a table with two people in intense, loud volume conversation. You're like, huh, should we move? Because they seem like they're kind of pretty wound up and going for it and whatever else. I don't know if I want to be a part of that. That's a little bit about how we come to what Paul's doing. Paul's having this inner dialogue, and it's intense. He's having a dialogue between his, his mind, as he calls it. This would be his, his God-centered mind, the, the part of him that loves the Lord, that loves God. Paul, as you know, is a Pharisee. He's somebody who's a professionally religious person. He's from a family of Pharisees. This runs in his family. And so pursuing Yahweh through obeying the law is just something that is his passion. And so he, in his mind, as he calls it, he agrees with the law. He agrees with what it takes to know God. And yet there's another part of him that he calls the flesh. This is the part that as soon as it hears about something that God wants to do, says, no, I will not do it. Paul gives an example. He says, when I heard about covetousness, the law says, don't covet, don't desire your neighbor's goods. I immediately wanted to have everything my neighbor had. Paul's like, I don't like that part of me. I wish I didn't have it. It's, it's not only irksome and bothersome, it is a saboteur. It undermines always his, his ability to be right in God's eyes. Because in Jewish law, if you disobeyed just one stroke of the law, you were guilty of disobeying the whole thing. No grading on the curve in the Jewish religion of that day. One strike, and you were clearly out. And so Paul, is, he's in a dilemma. And it's a serious dilemma. It's a fatal issue that he's facing. There's, there's the the mind and the flesh, and they're in battle, but his dilemma is that the flesh is always winning. It's winning through sabotage, but it is winning. And by winning, it means that it will disqualify him from actually being with God. And so there's, you can't have any more ultimate stakes than an eternal life or eternal death. And so this is why Paul describes himself as a wretched man. Like this inescapable Dilemma, I cannot get out. I haven't done in the escape room thing. I guess when you do those, you can actually get out. I think that's part of the attraction. He's in an escape room that he cannot get out of. What is he going to do? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Certain death awaits him. But thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's he saying? It is only through the work of Jesus. It is only by what Christ did. It is only by the fact that he grabs onto that, hangs onto that, believes in Jesus and his atoning work. 
his death on the cross, his resurrection, that he can escape an eternal death that awaits him because he cannot get there on his own. He cannot get there the way he thought he could by obeying the law. And we might think, well, that's just, you know, Paul may be a little worked up. He's a Pharisee after all. That's kind of like a religious lawyer. They get kind of granular on stuff. But we have the same story, different parts, different ways to describe it. But we too, if we know God, at some point came to the realization that we were without hope, that we could not be right with God by living the way that we would want to, that we too had a saboteur, a fleshly nature, that as soon as we heard what God wanted, we ran the other way. And we said, I want what I want. I'll have what I'll have. And I hope God grades on the curve. But when we live that way, we realize that it didn't produce the fruit. It didn't produce the good life that we thought. And this is the challenge. When we try to live a virtuous life, when we try to live the things that um, we think life brings, we look outside today, there's beauty, there's creation. We have relationships that are good and life-giving. Hopefully we, ha- we have a a morality that we think is not only helpful for us, but helpful for the society. But if, if we're really honest and we don't know the Lord, we know that even though we have these things, there's still things that are in us that want to sabotage that. We can't be the people that we think we are called to be. We grade ourselves on the curve, but Jesus says, you can't live connected to God and still have sin in your life. This is why I have come to deal with that. So our circumstances, our our journeys, our stories are going to be somewhat different than Paul's 2,000 years later, but they're no less serious and we're no less dependent than Paul was to say, be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of this, now we get to chapter 8. Because of this working out, this, this battle between the mind and the flesh, that he went through, that we ourselves have gone through, if we know Jesus, we can say, as Paul says, now there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be not condemned, to be free? I don't know that we would experience that um, in the way that is probably meant here. Condemnation in Bible times was something that was a, as a, if you were condemned, you were facing some capital punishment. Your life would be taken from you shortly. Paul says there's now no longer condemnation. It is a verdict that has been rendered. It is a judgment that has been cast. And it says that that person is somehow wanting, somehow will be cast out, somehow no longer included. Now, we know what it means to be condemned, maybe not to that level, but we, we, there are times in our lives where we realize that, that we have been rejected or somebody has pushed us away, cast us out, said we're no longer part of that. I think kids experience this pretty early in their life, right? A parent just kind of is human for a little bit. We think they're not human when we're small, but then they turn out to be human. And it's like, oh man, why did you just drop that on me? That's not fair. We say that's not fair. Remember, I had a nun in, when I was in second grade, and she, we turned in our exercise book, and, uh, and then mine didn't come back. 
Like, sister, you have my exercise book. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Eventually, I had to go buy another exercise book. And I was charged with losing the exercise book, so it cost my parents money. Come graduation from second grade, the nun comes out, all smiles. Guess what I found? Your exercise book. Like, thank you. First little opportunity to be eight-year-old. So sometimes we experience injustice. Sometimes we're, we're sort of cut out. But it, it grows from there, right? We have a friend that stops being a friend. We don't know the reason. We have a relationship that stops being a relationship. And we thought we knew the reason, but it turns out to be bigger than that. Some of you, know, if you're working in any kind of job that you're getting paid for, at some point you're going to look at, you're going to get a review. Some of you are in companies now where that review is 360 degrees, which means a lot of people are part of that. There's all kinds of opportunities for getting some kind of judgment, hopefully helpful but not necessarily all the time. So we not, may not know condemnation to that level, but we know what it means to be rejected at some level. And so we can kind of enter in with some degree of emotional connection with what Paul is talking about and to hear what Christ is saying, that there's no longer condemnation for those of us who are in him. There's no eternal condemnation. There's no way that we're not going to be with Jesus if we continue in what he has begun in our life, which is to follow him. So we're no longer wretched, but we're actually living in the freedom that he provides. We're no longer condemned that we are, in fact, reprieved. Verse 2 goes on to tell us what that looks like. Why? Because, Christ, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Suddenly, the law of sin and death, that fleshly part of us, that saboteur who's always undermining, is no longer the top dog. What is now more important? is this law of the Spirit of life. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. So that's the huge good news. This is how Romans 8 is starting for us. It goes on, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, the law could not bring us to God. In fact, the law just exposed how sinful we really are. So what it was powerless to do because it was weakened in the flesh, God did by sending his own son, <clears throat> excuse me, in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin for us. Praise God. This is a doxology. We'll do the doxology later. But a doxology is, is like, this is good for right now. This is like, give thanks and praise to God. So Paul says, this is where I start. This is where I am. Next week, as I said, we'll look at how the Spirit guides us and leads us. But I just want to explore in the remaining time that we have, what does it mean to live in this new freedom that we've been given? Because this is, as I said, it's not an arrival point. We're not at our destination. We've just begun the journey. But we don't have to bring it, be there alone any longer. <clears throat> we know that Christ goes before us. So how do we walk in that freedom that the law of the Spirit that gives life has given us? <clears throat> a couple, few things that occur to me. Some of you may have heard the term, never split the difference. Uh, my daughter and son-in-law gave me a, a master class a few years ago. Some of you, you know, you can do this set of videos. So I watched one on negotiation by a former FBI negotiator named Chris Voss. He's actually written a book called Never Split the Difference. His point is this, that in a negotiation, if you just say, okay, well, you get half and I'll get half, neither party is satisfied. Like, this is not a good idea. There are better ways to get what you want and then allow the other person to get what they want. You can look for a win-win. 
So it's interesting. It's great. Um, but and when it comes to sin, we, even though we've been freed from that, sometimes we want to go negotiate with whatever those desires are still living in us. That fleshly saboteur is still talking. He doesn't have the upper hand as he used to, but he still has a voice, and he's still working his thing. And we sometimes, rather than fight and rather than to say, that's not in my interest, that's not in what Christ has for me, that will actually hinder me, that will dishonor the Lord, that will prevent me from experiencing that love and grace to the extent and fullness that he intends, all those things. But somehow I'm just going to give in and negotiate. I'll do a little of the things I want to do, and I'll do some of the things that Jesus wants to do. Christ calls that being lukewarm later on. We cannot split the difference. We need, this is the journey that begins, and Romans 8 will help us understand what this looks like. We need to begin to follow him wholeheartedly, even while we know that's not easy to do. Some years ago, I was acquainted with a discipleship ministry in San Francisco. It was in the, uh, on Hudson Street and 3rd, and it was for people, guys that had been recently released from prison. And it was a two-year program, voluntary and if they wanted to participate in that, usually they came to faith in prison, and if they wanted to continue, they would be paired with a discipler, and they would do life 24-7. They didn't have it the same place uh, to live. They'd do meals together. That person, that discipler, would help them figure out what life looked like on the outside, a life that was very different from what they had on the inside. Their community was different. The rules were different. The uh, stresses were different. And we might think that that freedom that they experienced was great and wonderful, but it was also disconcerting. They had to learn new things, new skills. Uh, familiarity is a comfort, even though it's harsh. And now they're in a very unfamiliar place. It was very tough for these guys to go through it. Very few, it was a two-year program, very few actually got to the second year for a whole host of reasons. When we are formed and shaped by sinful patterns and sinful habits, as indeed all of us are, some of those will take longer than others to get right and to get more into the groove that Christ has for us. doesn't mean we don't want to do that from the get-go. It means that just some of them are more stubborn and take more specific effort, kind of like this discipleship. This is why we do discipleship. It's like we, why we do small groups, that we can pray for one another, we can lift one another up. So don't split the difference. Don't try to negotiate your new life in Christ with your old life. Don't try to think that the, your mind and the flesh can have an agreement. They cannot. The second thing that occurs to me is to uh, know your enemy. Like sin is still our enemy. Study your saboteur, as it were. Uh, the Puritans' early church, well, early Protestant effort was very concerned about sin. They didn't treat it as just, well, grace covers it all. They knew that theologically, and they would say that pastorally, but it was never used as an excuse to just carry on doing what we wanted to do. Know how we are wired. Know where we are vulnerable. This is specific to each of us. John Owen, the Puritan divine, wrote this. He actually wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, just to be, like, really focused. And it's not small. It's not a pamphlet, like, this big. 
The sin is taken seriously. He wrote this. The, uh, he says, one of the choicest and most eminent parts of practical spiritual wisdom consists in finding out the subtleties, the policies, the depths of any dwelling sin. Such a person never thinks that his sin, should never think that their sin is dead just because it's quiet. But instead they should labor and give that sin new wounds, new blows every day. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you want to wake up to a boxing match every day or some kind of big you know, cage match. But, but the Puritans were really serious about this. And I think we should know and understand what does that mean practically when we're vulnerable when we're tired, when we're like not at our best to have that hard conversation with somebody that we need to have, when maybe it would be wiser to postpone or wiser to pray instead of to just like charge into something. Know how we are wired. Know how the enemy waits. And even though things are quiet, doesn't mean that they don't exist any longer. So just to be aware, study that saboteur part of us. Third and final thing that occurs to me about how to walk in this freedom is to, um, I'll take a, I'll use an analogy from capture the flag. Capture the flag. Uh, for those of you who don't, one team has to go capture the flag over there and the other team has to capture the flag over here. And usually you tag somebody and then they are in jail. And uh, over time, a whole bunch of your colleagues are in jail over here. So you can actually go and rescue them right? You can either go for the flag or you go for jail. When you go to jail, you, if you just touch them, they're all free. Remember this? Anybody? Am I just like ancient or something? Okay, so you, they're free. So to, to, by analogy, as we have experienced the forgiveness of Christ, as we have experienced the new life that he has brought, if we, as, we no longer, as we know now that we're no longer under condemnation because we've been forgiven by him, so we too, let's go touch some other people by forgiving other people. Forgive those that have hurt you. Understand that Lord's forgiveness, there's no better way than to practically extend that forgiveness to those that have hurt you. Some of you are in the, in the process of that now. We have a situation with an extended family member that I am praying consistently. It's not a one-stop shop, but I pray regularly for not only to forgive them, but just to would not become embittered or to not grow callous and just say, well, it's up to you, whatever, you know, I've done my best. But to pray, to offer forgiveness, to offer grace, to say, but I just want to love them, to sing upon them. So as we have been freed from these things, we want to help other people to get free. We, a good way to do that, again, is just to give them forgiveness. When you do that, there's so, much lib there, there's so much freedom that just comes forth from that. I was reminded last week of a quote by Dr. Carl Menninger. Some of you know him as a century psychiatrist that did a lot for mental health. He said this at one point. He said that if he could convince patients in the psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could walk out the next day. The burden of unforgiveness is huge, huge. As Christ's vessels who have been forgiven, as Christ who are no longer under condemnation, to offer that to people that we know, people that we care about, people that we're struggling with, is hugely liberating. We get to play that role. The, the people that are hardest to love are 
toughest to forgive, are actually a blessing by God that allows us to be more like Christ. Remember that song, I want to be like Jesus, to reach out and touch him and tell him I love him, you know? Well, sometimes it's harder to be like Jesus than others. Sometimes we'd love just to, you know, give somebody a hug of fellowship or a word of encouragement. Other times, we're having to, we're called to forgive. But in that, we're releasing them from so much. So I'll leave it there. Christ has given us so much by his forgiveness of our sins. Christ has come to set us free. We are no longer the wretched man that did because of what Jesus has done. And it's in that foundational act of great mercy and love and forgiveness from Christ that allows us to go forward in our own life and walk with him as individuals, but also as a church. So we'll explore that in the weeks to come, but let's just pray that we would learn and sit in in what he has done for us and to allow this word and his through Romans to speak to us through this week. Amen.